Chapter Twelve, Part Two of Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louis Malbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers. Chapter Twelve, Part Two, The Fifth of October, seventeen eighty nine. In Versailles, all was confusion and consternation. Everyone had lost his senses. Everyone asked, and no one answered for the only one who could answer, the king, was not there. He had not yet returned from the hunt in Moudon. But the queen was there, and with a grand calmness and matchless grasp of mind, she undertook the duties of the king. First, she sent the chief equerry, the Marquis de Coubry, to meet the king and cause him to hasten home at once. She entrusted Count St. Priest minister of the interior with the division of the guards in the inner court of the palace she inspired the timid women with hope she smiled at her children who timid and anxious at the confusion which surrounded them fled to the queen for refuge and clung to her darker and darker grew the reports that came meanwhile to the palace they were the storm birds so to speak that precede the tempest they announced the near approach of the people of Paris, of the women, who were no longer unarmed, and who had been joined by thousands of the National Guard, who, in order to give the train of women a more imposing appearance, had brought two cannon with them, and who, armed with knives and guns, pikes and axes, and singing wild war-songs, were marching on as the escort of the women. The Queen heard all without alarm without fear she commanded the women who stood around her weeping and wringing their hands to withdraw to their own apartments and protect the dauphin and the princess to lock the doors behind them and to admit no one no one excepting herself she took leave of the children with a kiss and bade them be fearless and untroubled she did not look at them as the women took them away she breathed firmly as the doors closed behind them now i have courage to bear everything she said to st prix my children are in safety would only that the king were here at the same instant the door opened and the king entered marie antoinette hastened to meet him threw herself with a cry of joy into his arms and rested her head which had before been erect with courage heavily on his shoulder oh sire my dear sire thank god that you are here now i fear nothing more you will not suffer us to perish in misery you will breathe courage into these despairing ones and tell the inexperienced what they have to do sire perry is marching against us but with us there are god and france you will defend the honour of france and your crown against the rebels the king answered confusedly and as if in a yielding frame of mind we must first hear what the people want he said we must not approach them threateningly we must first discuss matters with them sire answered the queen in amazement to discuss with the rebels now is to imply that they are in the right and you will not you cannot do that i will consult with my advisers said the king pointing at the ministers who surrounded by st prix were then entering the room but what a consultation was that 
Every one made propositions, and yet no one knew what to do. No one would take the responsibility of the matter upon himself, and yet every one felt that the danger increased every minute. But what to do? That was the question which no one was able to answer, and before which the king was mute. Not so the queen, however. "'Sire!' cried she with glowing cheeks. "'Sire, you have to save the realm, and to defend it from revolution. The contest is here, and we cannot withdraw from it. Call your guards, put yourself at their head, and allow me to remain at your side. We ought not to yield to revolution, and if we cannot control it, we should suffer it to enter the palace of the kings of France only over our dead bodies.' "'Sire, we must either live as kings, or know how to die as kings.' But Louis replied to this burst of noble valor in a brave woman's soul, only withholding back in timidity. Plans were made and cast aside. They went on deliberating till the wild yells of the people were heard even within the palace. The queen, pale and yet calm, had withdrawn to the adjoining apartment. There she leaned against the door and listened to the words of the ministers and to the new reports which were all the time coming in from the streets. The crowd had reached Versailles and was streaming through the streets of the city in the direction of the palace. The National Guard of Versailles had fraternized with the Parisians. Some scattered soldiers of the Royal Guard had been threatened and insulted and even dragged from their horses. The Queen heard all and heard besides the consultation of the king and his ministers, still coming to no decisive results, doubting and hesitating, while the fearful crisis was advancing from the street. Already musket shots were heard on the great square, in front of the palace, wild cries and loud, harsh voices. Marie Antoinette left her place at the door and hurried to the window, where a view could be had of the whole square. She saw the dark dust-cloud which hung over the road to Paris. She saw the unridden horses running in advance of the crowd, their riders, members of the royal guard, having been killed. She heard the raging discords which surged up to the palace like a wave driven by the wind. She saw this black, dreadful wave sweep along the Paris road, roaring as it went. What a fearful mass! howling shrieking women with loosened hair and with menacing gestures extended their naked arms toward the palace defiantly their eyes naming their mouths overflowing with curses wild men's figures with torn blouses the sleeves rolled up over dusty and dirty arms and bearing pikes knives and guns here and there members of the national guard marching with them arm in arm pressed on toward the palace. Sometimes shrieks and yells, sometimes coarse peals of laughter or threatening cries issued from the confused crowd. Nearer and nearer surged the dreadful wave of destruction to the royal palace. Now it has reached it. Maddening fists pounded upon the iron gates before the inner court, and threatening voices demanded entrance. Hundreds and hundreds of women shrieked with wild gestures. "'We want to come in. We want to speak with the baker. We will eat the queen's guts if we cannot get anything else to eat.' 
and thousands upon thousands of women's voices repeated, Yes, we will eat the queen's guts if we get nothing else to eat. Marie Antoinette withdrew from the window. Her bearing was grave and defiant. A laugh of scorn played over her proudly drawn-up upper lip. Her head was erect, her step decisive, dignified. She went again to the king and his ministers. Sire, said she, the people are here. It is now too late to supplicate them as you wanted to do. Nothing remains for you except to defend yourself and to save the crown for your son, the Dauphin, even if it falls from your own head. It remains for us, answered the king gravely, to bring the people back to a sense of duty. They are deceived about us. They are excited. We will try to consolate them and to show them our fatherly interest in them. The queen stared in amazement at the pleasant, smiling face of the king. Then, with a loud cry of pain, which escaped from her breast like the last gasp of a dying man, she turned around and went up to the Prince de Luxembourg, the captain of the guard, who just then entered the hall. "'Do you come to tell us that the people have taken the palace?' cried the queen, with an angry burst from her very soul. "'Madame,' answered the prince, had that been the case, I should not have been here alive. Only over my body will the rabble enter the palace. Ah, muttered Marie Antoinette to herself, there are men in Versailles yet, there are brave men yet to defend us. What news do you bring, Captain? asked the king, stepping up. Sire, I am come to receive your commands, answered the prince, bowing respectfully. This mob of shameless shrews is growing more maddened, more shameless every moment. Thousands and thousands of arms are trying the gates, and guns are fired with steady aim at the guards. I beg your majesty to empower me to repel this attack of mad women. "'What an idea, captain!' cried Louis, shrugging his shoulders. "'Order to attack a company of women! You are joking, prince!' And the king turned to Count de Lamarck who was entering the room. "'You come with new news. What is it, Count?' "'Sire, the women are most desirous of speaking with your majesty and presenting their grievances.' "'I will hear them,' cried the king eagerly. "'Tell the women to choose six of their number and bring them into my cabinet. I will go there myself.' "'Sire, you are going to give audience to revolution,' cried Marie Antoinette, seizing the arm of the king, who was on the point of leaving the room. "'I conjure you, my husband, do not be overpowered by your magnanimous heart. Let not the majesty of the realm be defiled by the raging hands of these furies. Remain here. O oh, sire, if my prayers, my wishes have any power with you, remain here. Send a minister to treat with these women in your name, but do not confront their impudence with the dignity of the crown.' Sire, to give them audience is to give audience to revolution, and from the hour when it takes place, revolution has gained the victory over the kingly authority. Do not go, oh, do not go! I have given my word, answered Louis gently. I have sent word to the women that I would receive them, and they shall not say that the first time they set foot in the palace of their king, they were deceived by him. And see, there comes the count to take me. And the king followed with hasty step, 
Count de Lamarck, who had just then appeared at the door. Six women of wild demeanor, with dusty, dirty clothes, their hair streaming out from their round white caps, were assembled in the cabinet of the king, and stared at him with defiant eyes as he entered. But his gentle demeanor and pleasant voice appeared to surprise them, and Louis Chablet, the speaker, who had selected the women, found only timid, modest words with which to paint to the king the misfortunate, the need, and the pitiable condition of the people, and with which to enter his pity and assistance. "'Ah, oh, my children,' answered the king with a sigh, "'only believe me, it is not my fault that you are miserable, and I am still more unhappy than you. I will give directions to Corbel and Destamp, the controllers of the grain stores, to give out all that they can spare. If my commands had always been obeyed, it would have been better with us all. If I could do everything, could see to it that my commands were everywhere carried into effect, you would not be unhappy. And you must confess, at least, that your king loves you as a father his children, and that nothing lies so closely at his heart as your welfare." Go, my children, and tell your friends to prove worthy of the love of their king, and to return peaceably to Paris. Long live the king! Long live our father! cried the touched and pacified women, as trembling and with tears in their eyes they left the royal cabinet, in order to go to the women below, and announce to them what the king had said. But the royal words found no response among the excited masses. "'We are hungry! We want bread!' shouted the women. "'We are not going to live on words any more. "'The king shall give us bread, and then we shall see it proved that he loves us like a father. "'Then we will go back to Paris. "'If the baker believes that he can satisfy us with words and fine speeches, he is mistaken. "'If he has no bread, he shall give us his wife to eat,' roared a man with a pike in his hand and a red cap on his head. The baker's wife has eaten up all our bread, and it is no more than fair that we should eat her up now. Give us the heart of the queen, was now the cry. Give us the heart of the queen. Marie Antoinette heard the words, but she appeared not to be alarmed. With dignity and composure, she cast a look at the ministers and gentlemen, who, pale and speechless, had gathered around the royal couple. I know that this crowd has come from Paris to demand my head. I learned of my mother not to fear death, and I shall meet it with courage and steadfastness. And firmly and fearlessly, Marie Antoinette remained all this dreadful evening, which was now beginning to overshadow Versailles. Outside of the palace raged the uproar. Revolutionary songs were sung. Veiled forms, the leaders of the revolution, stole around and fired the people with new rage against the baker and the baker's wife. Torches were lighted to see by, and the blood-red glare shone into the faces there, intended to exasperate them still more. What dances were executed by the women, with torches in their hands? And the men roared in accompaniment, ridiculing the king and threatening the queen with death. At times the torches threw their flickering glare into the windows of the palace, where were the ministers and servants of the king, in silent horror. Among all those counselor of the king, 
there was at this time but one man, Marie Antoinette. She alone preserved her steadfastness and discretion. She spoke to everyone friendly and inspiriting words. She roused up the timid. At times she even attempted to bring the king to some decisive action, and yet she did not complain when she found herself unable to do so. Once her face lighted up in hope and joy. That was when a company of deputies, headed by Toulon, entered the hall to offer their service to the royal couple, and to ask permission to be allowed to remain around the king and queen. But scarcely had this request been granted, when both the secretaries of the President of the National Assembly entered, warning the members, in the name of the President, to return at once to the hall and to partake in the night session which was to be held. "'They call our last friends away from us,' murmured the Queen, "'for they want us to be entirely defenceless.' All at once the cries on the square below were more violent and loud. Musket shots were heard. At the intervals between rose the thousand-voiced clamor, and at one time the thunder of a cannon. There was a rush of horses and clash of arms, more musket shots, and then the cry of the wounded. The king had withdrawn to hold a last consultation with his ministers and a few faithful friends. At this fearful noise, this sound of weapons, this shout of victory, his first thought was of the queen. He rose quickly and entered the hall. No one was there. The red glare of the torches was thrown from below into the deserted room, and showed upon the wall wondrous shadows of contorted human figures, with clenched fists and with raised and threatening arms. The king walked hastily through the fearfully illuminated hall, called for the queen with a loud voice, burst into the cabinet, then into her sleeping-room. But no Marie Antoinette was to be found. No one gave reply to the anxious call of the king. More dreadful grew the wild shrieks and howls, the curses and maledictions which came in from without. The king sprang up the little staircase which led to the rooms of the children, and dashed through the antechamber, where the door was open that led to the Dauphine's sleeping-room. And here Louise stood still, and looked with a breath of relief at the group which met his tearful eyes. The Dauphine was lying in his bed, fast asleep, with a smile on his face. Marie Antoinette stood erect before the bed, in an attitude of proud composure. "'Marie,' said the king, deeply moved, "'Marie, I was looking for you.' The queen slowly turned her head toward him and pointed at the sleeping prince. "'Sire,' answered she calmly, "'I was at my post.' Louis, overcome by the sublimity of a mother's love, hastened to his wife and locked her in his arms. "'Remain with me, Marie,' he said. "'Do not leave me. Breathe your courage and your decision into me.' The queen sighed and sadly shook her head. She had not a word of reproach. She did not say that she no longer believed in the courage and decision of the king, but she had no longer any hope. But the doors of the room now opened. Through one came the maids of the queen and the governess of the Dauphine. Through the other, some gentlemen of the court to call the king back into the audience hall. 
After the first panic, everyone had come back to consciousness again, and all vied in devouting themselves to the king and the queen. The gentlemen brought word that something new had occurred, and that this was the cause of the dreadful tumult below upon the square. The National Guard of Paris had arrived. They had fraternized with the National Guard of Versailles and with the people. They had been received by the women with shouts of applause, and by the men with a volley of musket shots and salutation. General Lafayette had entered the palace to offer his services to the king, and he now asked for an audience. "'Come, madame,' said Louis quickly, cheered up. "'Let us receive the general. You see that things are not so bad with us as you think. We have faithful servants yet to hasten to our assistance.' The queen made no reply. Quietly she followed the king into the hall, in which Lafayette, surrounded by the ministers and gentlemen, was standing. On the entrance of the royal couple, the general advanced to meet them with a reverential salutation. "'Sire,' said Lafayette, with cheerful confidence, "'sire, I have come to protect your majesties and the National Assembly against all those who shall venture to threaten you.' "'Are you assured of the fidelity and trustworthiness of your troops?' asked the queen, whose flaming eyes rested upon Lafayette's countenance, as if she wanted to read his utmost thoughts. But these eyes did not confuse the cheerful calmness of the general. "'I know, madame, that I can rely upon the fidelity of my soldiers,' answered he confidently. "'They are devoted to me to the death, and as I command them, they will watch over the security of the king and queen, and keep all injury from them.' The queen detected the touch of scorn in these loud-sounding words, but she pretended to believe them. At last she really did believe them, for Lafayette repeated emphatically that from this time nothing more was to be feared for the royal family, and that all danger was past. The guard should be chosen this night from his own troops. The Paris National Guard should restore peace again in Versailles, and keep an eye upon the crowds which had encamped upon the great square before the palace. Lafayette promised well for his army, for the howling, shrieking women, for the cursing, raging men. And the king was satisfied with these assurances of General Lafayette, and so, too, was Marie Antoinette at last. Louis ordered the garde du corps to march to Rambolet, and reserved only the necessary sentinels in the palace. In the immediate neighborhood the soldiers of Lafayette were stationed. The general once more made the rounds, and then, as if everything was in a position of the greatest security, he went into the palace to spend the night there, and in peaceful slumbers to refresh himself for the labors of the day. The king, too, had retired to his apartments, and the valets who had assisted his majesty to undress had not left the sleeping-room, when the loud, uniform breathing, which issued from the silken curtains of the bed, told them that the king had already fallen asleep. The queen, too, had gone to rest, and while laying her wearied and heavy head upon the cushions, she tenderly besought both her maids to lie down, too. All was quiet now in the dark palace of Versailles. The king and the queen slept. But through the dark, deserted halls, which that day had witnessed so much pain and anxiety, resounded now the clang of the raging, howling voices which came up from the square and hurled their curses against the queen. 
In the palace of Versailles they were asleep, but without, before the palace, uproar and hate kept guard, and with wild thoughts of murder stalked around the palace of the kings of France. How soon were those thoughts to become fact? Sleep, Marie Antoinette, sleep. One last hour of peace and security. One last hour. Before the morning dawns, hate will awaken thee, and murder's terrible voice will resound through the halls of the King of France. End of chapter 12, part 2. Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee.